Esas son las mañanitas que cantaba el rey David. Hello, welcome back to The World As We Know It. This is the part two of the History of Mexico episode. So if you haven't yet listened to part one, just go back and do that real quick. But you won't be able to do it real quick because it's like an hour and a half long. We'll wait. But we'll wait for you. Um, let's just take a quick 10 seconds uh, now so you can pause and go back to that one. Okay. Was well, it 10 seconds, but I'm pretty sure you got it. I was on three Mississippi. Guess what? I'm not patient. Anyway, so remember in part one, we learned about basically the ancient cultures of Mexico, um, namely the Olmec, the Maya, uh, and the Mexica, or the Aztec people. Um, And then we learned quite a bit about Cortez and what a bastard he was. Uh, Oh, I forget all about that cool story with the guy and the the crocodile. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's badass. So yeah, that was a super cool story. Um, I mean, you just listened to part one, you'd know it already, so we're not going to go back over that. Uh, and then we learned about, um, you know, uh, basically, we're getting up to the Mexican Revolution. Uh, remember, there was a time of great political turmoil when we were under Spanish rule. Um, lots of Catholic priests were saying, uh, stop it, Spain, and then getting killed. And then people were like, hey, stop killing our priests. So right now we're we're right on the brink of we just finished our revolutions so and our brink of Mexican freedom. I'm sorry that it's taken so long between our episodes to get this out. We are grad students. It is midterms. We'll be better in the future. We promise. Yep, overworked. Oh yeah, Brad's here too. He's barely talked. It's all been me. Anyway, so let's we're gonna kick off this part two episodes. This is our first time doing a two-parter. Um, with our initial familiarity ratings of uh, more modern Mexico, right? Uh, well, I was just going to... You're reading off my slides. I am reading off <laughs> of your slides. I was just going to like give us like like a recap. Like Our familiarity ratings were both blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah. Blah. I forget what mine was. Um, mine was a f- five, I think. I mean, yeah. Four or five. You you guys will know better than me at this point. Yeah. You're, uh, you're fresh off the part one. Um but my familiarity, so I think my familiarity rating with ang- or part one of Mexico, like ancient to pre-modern Mexico, is is greater than my familiarity rating with modern Mexico really? and like history since the revolution. Uh, yeah, because like I know I know you know what hap- what's happening in Mexico today, basically at least a small degree of it. Um, but I am more familiar with the old ancient and colonial history than I am with free Mexico. It's interesting. It's very interesting. We're going to get into that. We should start doing our familiarity ratings for every point of history. <laughs> like, yes. how much do you know about the <laughs> this is my Crusades? Eight, this is my 1830s familiarity rating. <laughs> <laughs> it's a zero. <laughs> um, okay, how about you take us in the flag corner, and then we will go into part two of history. Yeah, let's do that. All right, so the flag of Mexico, we kind of talked about why it is the way it is. So you'll know that the flag of Mexico is red white and green in the middle is the emblem of mexico which we learned from the legend of the mexica that when they were coming down from the north they would know that they found their homeland which would end up being mexico city when they saw an eagle on a cactus eating a snake maybe not eating maybe just with a snake in its mouth so that's the emblem he's fucking the snake up kiki yeah, I mean, they're tearing up that snake. And you know what that snake is? Fucking colonialism, which we'll get into in part <laughs> tearing two. Tearing up that snake. I heard that a lot in high school. Um, so it's a tricolor flag. So we'll see green on the most flagpole side of the flag. Middle is white, and on the other side is red. Uh, and it's been adopted uh, since the War of Independence in Spain. So since 1810, it was designed by a man called Miguel Hidalgo. Uh, not Hidalgo starring Vigo Mortensen. My not, wish, not Kiki. that one at all. You stole my heart. Uh, yeah, I feel like a lot of people see the Mexican flag from a distance, or they can identify from far away being a, an American neighbor, but they don't really know what that's about. But um, I mean, it's pretty cool when you know what the eagle is doing and what's in its mouth and the history behind it. I think it adds a lot more depth to the flag as we know it. Do you have what the colors mean in front of you, Kiki, yet? Oh, you know, <laughs> that's what I was trying to do, wasn't I? Yeah. It's been a while since we've had a flag corner. Okay. It's still your favorite segment. Don't it worry. is still my favorite segment. I don't even think I said that. Um, so the symbolism. Yeah, here we go. 
So the meaning of the flag, the green stripe represents the independence movement, the white stripe represents the purity of the Catholic faith, and the red stripe, I know, <laughs> I know. <laughs> and the red stripe represents the, the Spaniards that joined in the conquest for independence and the blood of the national heroes. And it should be said that the meanings of these colors have changed over time. There have been a lot of different meanings, but this is what it's currently understood to mean. All right. Good flag corner. Yeah, Which... it was a okay flag corner. Uh, but please. Oh, and also, like, we saw in our, well, I saw in my flag studies that this is very similar to the Italian flag. But the difference with the Italian flag is that the Italian flag does not have an emblem in the middle and that it is slightly longer so that, like, the Mexican flag would fit onto it. Uh, and there'd be a little little space on the Italian flag. But we'll talk about that more when we get to Italy. Because we all know that the Italian flag just means margarita pizza. Good, good addendum, Gigi. Um, all right, final sidebar before we get into the history, because there's a lot, part two. Um, uh, so as we get closer to modernity, we're going to have more information, more detail about everything. But for sake of time, we can't get into everything. And so there'll be a lot of omitted information and i'm sure that will be glaring in some aspects if but guess what with we are happy to be resources for you if you want to tweet at us for more resources on how we did our research yeah. or if you want us to dig up stuff for you happy to do that we just don't have that much time in our one and a half hour podcast all right so that being said let's move on and so we have nine periods of focus in um in modern mexico quote unquote so you have the post-independence period mexican-american war that period surrounding that then there was a war of reform and a second Mexican empire following the first one that was post-independence. Then you have the presidency of Porfirio Diaz, that was in the 1910. You have the revolution and Mexican Revolution and Civil War until, until 1920. And you have this kind of consolidating the revolution into political parties up until 1940. Then you have the evolution into modern Mexico from 1940 to 1970. You have the late 20th century until 1994. And then you have modern Mexico from 1994 onward. Lots of periods, lots of shit happens. That's cool. That's pretty well divided. I'm pretty sure you can do it. All right. First is the post-independence period, and this happens after independence. This is the chaos, the chaos of Mexican politics with the power vacuum left by the Spain, the Spaniards leaving. Um, Kiki mentioned this at the tail end of her uh, part, but you know, uh, presidency changed 75 times in uh, in the next 55 years, which is just that's too many times. Utter tumult. Okay. And um, I think the Treaty of yeah the Treaty of Cordoba in, in eighteen twenty one is what granted Mexico their independence from Spain. So following that treaty, you have Spanish attempts to reconquer Mexico, um, and th these there were some different wars, mostly naval conquests from Spanish power in Cuba, trying to send troops over. Um, Spain just wouldn't leave them alone. Um, yeah, you have, you have, uh, between 1826 and 1828, you have Spanish-held island of Cuba as a military base. They're still launching some attacks. Um, Spain never gained control of the country again, but it did damage the fledging economy a lot. Um, the newly independent nation was in dire straits. Um, still internal struggles to form a government, and this leads us into the first Mexican empire. So before they were a republic, they became an empire. Um, you have... Uh, uh, Iturbide. That looks right. Iturbide. Um, he became a dictator. Um, he proclaimed himself Emperor of Mexico, kind of copying the tradition of Napoleon, who was really big in these times. Uh, no one was allowed to speak against him. Uh, he had lots of corrupt, corrupt officials. He made dishonest business dealings. And Mexico gained a lot of territory in this period. They annexed the Federal Republic of Central America, which includes almost all the Central American countries at that, at, that are present day. Yeah, we learned about that in the Guatemala episode, too. Yeah, and they have a cool flag, too. We're going to get that some other time. Um, and so they were the, this large, large empire, um, but they kind of, like, they looted themselves to a federal republic in 1824 because uh, Mexicans of all classes were fed up with his rule, uh, Emperor Agustin de Iturbide. Yeah, you said it right before. I don't know what changed between now and when you first said <laughs> his it. His first but, name. Um, <laughs> I think it's, like, Agustin de Iturbide. Ooh, that sounds nice. Ooh. Um, so the, he was overthrown in 1824, and this is when the United Mexican States, or the Estados Unidos Mexicanos, was established. Is that incorrect? I mean, it's good enough, I guess. Good enough, Brad. That's my nickname. Um, <laughs> Passable. And, and they partly modeled their new constitution of the Republic on the Constitution of the United States, 
and had things like basic human rights, uh, representative federal republic, etc., etc. Uh, and then the federal republic of Central America was allowed to reestablish its independence. Um, so they kind of got out of the empire of Mexico. And then, um, and their flag back then was very similar to the flag now. Um, I think their their eagle is way more aggressively attacking the snake. He's he's calm. He's calmed mm-hmm. down his maturity. Um, <laughs> but I like seeing interim flags. Very interesting. Okay, so this leads us into a period building up to the Mexican American War. The Republic of Mexico and in its infancy was a centralist republic. Um, it, was, it was in the period of the age of Cadizmo. Um, this, oh, yeah. this is where military strongmen dominated politics, like roaming bands of like like rebel arms groups. This is from nineteen late eighteen twenties to mid eighteen fifties. Um, it's also called the Age of Santa Ana. Um, the general turned politician Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, Santa Ana. <laughs> if you're in, yeah, if you're if you're, if you're a gringo, in, if you're America. Um, uh, Federalists at this point they asked him Santa Ana Santa Ana to overthrow the then conservative president. Um, and when he did... No, you got to say that name because it's a good-looking name. Anastasio Bustamante? Yeah. That's a good name. Um, this basically just ends with Santa Ana taking office in 1832. He served as president 11 different times. Um, so he's kind of in power. He's in the mix during the next conflicts, which is like the Texas War of Independence or the Texas Revolution. There's a military conflict between Mexico and the settlers in the Texas portion of the Mexican state of... Uh, I think it's Coahuila y Tejas. Okay, so that state of which Texas was a part, it was not part of America yet. They had their, they became independent in 1836, and the in, the inhabitants of Tejas um, declared the Republic of Texas independent from Mexico, and um, they call themselves Texans. They're led mainly by English-speaking settlers. Is this the Alamo? I think the Alamo is involved is this here Davy somewhere. Davy Crockett. Um, I mean, or the other one. I think one. I may touch on it later. Yeah, we'll um, get into it later. Yeah, so in 1836, te- uh, Texan militias defeated the Mexican army. They captured Santa Ana, um, and the Mexican government refused to recognize independence of Texas. Um, so this leads into this uh, period of conflict uh, with Texas as a buffer zone between the United States and, and Me- Mexico. You have the northern states growing isolated because there's like um, there's this uh, this large kind of nebulous era area in in New Mexico called the Comancheria where the Comanche peoples are and they have a lot of raids and attacks on them there. I know about the Comanches from Age of Empires 3, which I reference often in this podcast. Oh yeah, that's a good reference. Um, yeah, and the Comanches at this time they're raiding and pillaging large portions of northern Mexico, which at this point includes New Mexico and some of California. Um, the government of Mexico really couldn't send like a lot of armed troops there to discipline the Comanches. Um and so, in this period of tumult, you have the Mexican massacre of a U.S. Army detachment in this disputed territory, this large band um, in the southwest United States. And then U.S. Congress declares war on Mexico on May 13, 1846. And Mexico, you know, follows suit and declares war on them. And this, this happens to start the Mexican-American War. And this took place in two theaters, the West in California and Central Mexico, the American campaign trying to capture Mexico City going through Tejas, and um, the war itself ended with... I'm not going to get into the war. I mean, it's not a war podcast. Uh, The war ended with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which stipulated that Mexico must sell its northern territories to the U.S. for $15 million, a steal. Um, The U.S. would would give full citizenship and voting rights and protect the property rights of Mexicans who lived in those territories, and then the U.S. would would assume the debts owed by Mexico to Americans. Um... Uh, people attribute Mexico's defeat in this war to like problematic internal situations, you know, disorganization and stuff like that. But it was oh, a hard-fought war. I have a, a, a graphic here um, to show. Yeah, cool. I, I love when you show graphics for a podcast. I'm going to describe no, it's in my okay. words, it's okay. it's okay. <laughs> language to paint a picture. Okay, so at this point, the Republic of the Yucatan Peninsula is its own republic. Mexico itself, the republic, um, is mainly that that large peninsula up into um, the Texas border. What would now be Texas, but you know, Texas is disputed at this point, trying to find independence. New Mexico, Arizona, California, the Baja Peninsula, um, that's all grayed out, disputed territory. Um, so, like, beset on all sides by, you know, republics that are not really, um, they're kind of hostile to Mexico. So, 1945, they're struggling. 
1845. Sorry. But I'm pretty sure they're struggling in 1945 too, but we'll get there. We'll see. Um, um, boop, boop, boop. So after the Mexican-American War, um, uh, America discovered that there was an easier railroad route to California that lay slightly in Mexico. And so uh, in 53, President Santa Ana sold off the Gadsden Strip with the Gadsden Purchase to the U.S. Um, uh, a lot of people like uh, didn't like that uh, they were selling territory to the U.S., but um, Santa Ana claimed that they needed the money to rebuild the army after the war, which is debatable, but probably true. And then this gets into a period called La Reforma, or the, the Reform Period, the very, very large period in the mid-19th century. Um, they're trying to get more liberal reforms, kind of uh, dilute the power of the Catholic Church in the, in this, in the state, in the republic. Um, and this transformed Mexico from a fledgling republic into a true nation state. Um, it began with the final overthrow of Santa Ana at the revolution of Ayutla, Ayutla in 1855. And the, uh, the moderate liberal Ignacio Comonfort became president. And there was also, between the liberals and the conservatives that were kind of tail end of Santa Ana's rule, you have the moderados, or the, the moderate, moderates. Yeah. moderates. Um, well, I'm pretty going to be important later. So, um, the common date for the ending of the reform period was 1861. Uh, there was the reform war itself. There was an actual conflict. Um, the liberals won that in 1867. Um, and there was French intervention in Mexico um, after that Republican victory. And this leads into... Um, Porfirio Diaz becoming president, so that's kind of how it's going to play out. Um, boop, 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 and that plays out by. Um, let's see for a second. There's a lot of com a lot of complex interplay here. Okay, so um, liberal president Comonfort, 1857, tries to gain support from the growing conservative pro-clerical movement, Catholic Church movement. Yep. Um, however, there was a conservative coup that succeeded in the capital in 1858. This coup sparks the, the revolt that leads to the War of Reform, which lasts from 1857 to 1861, um, which grew very, very bloody. Um, moderates in this time convinced that the church's political power had to be curbed, and they joined with the liberals, giving them a majority. Nice. This It'd be is, nice if something like that happened. This isn't a political podcast. No. Please continue. Um, this is how it is confound, confounded. This really becomes really complicated because in 1862, France invades Mexico, which I had never heard of before. What? So, I had never heard that either. The country is invaded by France, which sought to collect debts that the Juarez government, that was part of the war on reform, had defaulted on. But the major larger purpose was to install a ruler under French control, like the Habsburg dynasty. Oh, fucking shit. So Archduke Ferdinand Maximilian of Austria was installed as Emperor Maximilian I of Mexico. Which is the banana sentence. <laughs> um, he had support from the Catholic Church, support from that upper class conservatives that were ousted yeah, from the Yeah, because of course they want aristocracy and, and, and shit. And some indigenous communities um, for various reasons. Um, so the French suffered an initial defeat, the Battle of Puebla in 1862, which now commemorates the Cinco de Mayo holiday. What? So that's what Cinco de Mayo is about. It's about because it's the, the fucking French. Because Cin I know, I knew it wasn't Mexican Independence Day. Because no, that's what stupid gringos think. Cinco de Mayo is about ousting the French in, an, in a battle of defeat on May fifth, eighteen sixty-two. Oh, um, ho, ho. The, the French eventually defeated the Mexican army and they set Maximilian on the throne. Um, there's a Mexican-French monarchy set up in Mexico City. That's okay, funny. very strange. Never heard about it before till this podcast. Okay. So, France never made a profit in Mexico. The expedition they led there um, was very, very unpopular, obviously in Mexico and back in France. Um, in the spring of 1865, after the Civil War was over, the U.S. demanded the withdrawal of French troops from Mexico. So, bro move, maybe? I don't know. Napoleon III quietly complied, removed French troops from, French troops from Mexico. Um, <laughs> the French trip ended with the French troops leaving. And in, in mid-1867... <laughs> Um, and they were they were losing more in battle. They they had lost support from Napoleon himself. Uh, uh, Maximilian chose to remain in Mexico rather than return to Europe. I mean that's his empire. He's the emperor. Yeah. Um, and then, however, a famous painting by Edouard Manet caps, um, captures the moment of his execution along with two Mexican supporters. Looking at this painting now, I don't know. It doesn't grasp a lot of emotion for me. Well, it's also got that 
what's that period called? Uh, it's not impressionist. Impre- it's somewhat impressionist, isn't it? I don't know. I'll look this up while you keep Famous going. painting. There was there was a French emperor in Mexico. He got murdered. Not murdered. Executed. Yeah, he was executed. Okay. There's a difference. So in 1867, monarchy is defeated. Emperor executed. Republic restored. Juarez re-elected. We started from the bottom, and now we're here. <laughs> um, he continued, just like as before, a French intervention to implement reforms. He was elected a, seven, a second time in 1871. Um, but this is, this is going to start a huge trend of undemocratic corruption in, in re-elections in Mexican history. That's going to persist into the present day. Keep that in your mind. Um, however, he was re-elected, maybe unfairly. He still died one year later. He was succeeded by Sebastián Lerdo de Tejada. Um, I like how you said Sebastián. Like, like it's French. No, I saw a little mark, and I just go, uh. I'd call it Sebastian. Sebastian. But that's only because I watch a lot of Jane the Virgin. And, and probably because you know better, because you're better it's Sebastian Lerdo de Tejada. Tejada. That's what I would, how I would say it. Um, okay. So before Juarez died, one of his reformers was fully secularizing the country. The Catholic Church was barred from owning property, aside from, like, houses of worship and monasteries. And education and marriage were put in the hands of the state. Okay, so we have a restored republic more secular, we're looking good, tail end of the 1860s and into into 1870s. Okay. This gets into the Porfiriato period. That's a nice slide for another, like, a hear or listening podcast. It's a very well put together slide, listeners. Yeah. Uh, But you will never see it, so continue. Yep. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It's inside joke with just the people recording this right now. You guys will never understand. When you get the director's cut behind the scenes, you'll get to see the the, the film. We're going to start making video of us recording this podcast. Please no. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so the rule of Porfirio Diaz from 1876 to 1911 was dedicated to the rule of law, suppression of violence, and the modernization of all aspects of society and the economy. That's really nice. He's kind of half like strongman Latin American dictator that we've seen with Paraguay and Guatemala, but also half like modern founding father. He's a big figure. He's like laying down the law, but he's like, we got to get a fucking move on and yes. making our country modern. Yes. So, and, and Mexico needed, I mean, this is maybe, I don't know, I'm not Mexican, but they needed a more prolonged period of growth without wars, 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 changing hands yeah. of power. So let's see what happens. Diaz was, he was, he was an astute military leader liberal politician who built a national base of supporters. He tried not to antagonize Catholics. He, invorted, he avoided enforcement of anti-clerical laws, so he was playing both sides. Yeah. He was being popular. Um, country's infrastructure was greatly approved, improved thanks to foreign investment from Britain and the U.S. and a strong, stable central government. Um, so Mexico moved from a target of ridicule to na- international pride. Um, urban Mexicans debated national identity. Um, there was kind of a rejection of indulgent... Um, Oh, traditional ways that were under challenge. These these traditional ways that were under that were under challenge included uh, Mexican uh, urban Mexicans who debated the national identity, um, the rejection of indigenous cultures, which is bad. Yeah, that's fucking rude. And then um, they tried to recapture some passion for French culture once the French were ousted, which is strange to me. I guess um, like I I'm not going to put words in these Mexicans' mouths, but I imagine that like having a French aristocracy. And being associated with the upper classes, like wanting to recapture some of that. Yeah. I'm thinking. I think they were like looking... almost like a caste system, especially with the rejection of indigenous cultures. They're just trying to make it more uh, fancy Mexico, French yeah. Mexico. I think they were trying to follow the European model of industrialization, yeah. and that left indigenous peoples by the wayside. That's mean of you. It is mean. Um, confirmed mean. Um, what, the 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 big thing that happened at the end of his uh, his tenure is that he announced in 18, 1908 that he would retire in nineteen eleven, and then he kind of like pulled back on that and still ran for re-election, um, and then as a showing of U.S. support, like Diaz planned these um, these summits with uh, uh, President Taft and like El Paso, Texas, and the Ciudad Juarez. Yeah. That means um, um, Juarez City. Okay, Juarez City in 1909. And this is the first historic meeting between a president and a Mexican president, U.S. president, Mexican president. And the first time an a American president would cross the border into Mexico. That's cool. Thanks, President Taft, for doing he, something. He did it. Okay, so the Mexican Revolution is a misnomer because it doesn't refer to a single revolution 
conflict. It refers to a broad period of more than 10 years to describe political and social changes in early 20th century. That, that coincides with the uh, Porfirio, Porfiriato period of Diaz's rule. Okay. Um, uh, doop, doop, doop. You have the fraudulent election of Porfirio Diaz in 1910 after he said he wouldn't run. Um, and this... Um, and there was also the, that lasts, uh, okay, never mind. The first election of Porfirio Diaz in 1910 um, until the 1920 election of Northern General um, Alvaro Obregon. Obregon. So that's the revolutionary period. This period uh, begins with the end of the Porfirio period. Okay, lots of periods. Um, do, do, do. Let's try to get into the meaty stuff here. Um, there was lots of fraud um, with his final running mate, Diaz's. Um, the official election exults de uh, declared that he had won almost unanimously and that his uh, opponent, Madero, had received only a few hundred votes, which is obviously That's not, not true. Many. He was very, very popular. Oh, sorry. Um, he, he tried to use the army to suppress the, the resulting revolts. Um, but most of the ranking generals were old men close to his own age. They didn't act swiftly enough or with sufficient energy to stem the tide of the violence. This leads to revolutionary forces breaking out, of which several are very famous people, led by Emiliano Zapata, that's one of them in the South. Good one. Pancho Villa. He's and famous. Pascual Orozco in the North. And Vunustanio Carranza. Um, he's in the North, too. Carranza. Okay. Carranza. Carranza. Um... A coalition of those um, radical revolutionaries defeated the federal army. So finally, Diaz resigned in May 1911 for the sake of the peace of the nation. Oh, that's big of you. Yeah. Um, the terms of his resignation were spelled out in the Treaty of the City of Juarez. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so there was a period called the Ten Tragic Days. Lots of bad things happened. Oh, no. Madero was ousted and killed because he had been, after Diaz resigned, the guy who was supposed to be elected, Madero, got power. However, ousted and killed in February 1913. Um, one of Diaz's former generals um, plotted with the U.S. ambassador to Mexico, Henry Lane Wilson, to topple Madero and reassert the policies of Diaz. Ma America, why you do this? America, stay in your lane! Stay in your lane, America. Henry um, Lane Wilson, stay in your lane, America. Anyway. Feels like a good one. That was a stretch, but... It was awesome, no. <laughs> Um, so within a month of the coup, rebellion started spreading in Mexico. That is the most common sentence in Mexican history. Um, <laughs> uh, most prominently by the governor of the state of... Coahuila. Coahuila. And the Carranza guy we just mentioned with his old revolutionary his buddies. His name is Venusiano Carranza. Carranza? Because he has two R's. He makes... Okay. Him and his old revolutionary anyway. buddies, such as Pancho Villa, they mobilized um, following Madero's assassination um and they tried to reach political agreement um but then didn't work didn't pan out mexico plunged into true civil war in the revolutionary period from 1914 to 1915 uh this constitutionalist faction under wealthy landowner carranza emerged as victor in 1915 <laughs> carranza Car carranza defeated <laughs> so his faction defeated the revolutionary forces of pancho villa and uh, Zapata. Um, Zapata was assassinated in 1919 by agents of Carranza, who was then president. Okay, so now you have, you have factions, you have a winning side, but to consolidate the revolution into some kind of nation. So Carranza promulgated a, a new constitution in February the 5th, 1917. Um, this constitution, with significant amendments in the 1990s, is still Mexico's constitution. Oh, cool. So... Constitution. Here's a little aside for history. On 19th January 1917, you know that how... That is a very European date. I know, I fucked up. <laughs> uh, the Zimmerman telegram was sent from German foreign minister to Mexico proposing... Proposing... Proposing. Proposing. Porpoises were involved. <laughs> joint military action against the United States if war did break out, which it did in World War I. Um, America was very, very angry until Carranza generals told him that uh, Mexico would lose would basically lose to America if they fought. Mm -hmm. So, um, plus the message was intercepted and published. Um, so, uh, and, and I think they actually declared war in early April, America did, until Carranza, Carranza, whatever, formally rejected the offer 
and uh, and the threat of war with the U.S. ceased. So, yeah, so it could have been a bad thing. Yeah. But it turned out, I guess, for America, I should say, yeah. it's a very America-centric view. Um, yeah. yeah, it could have been a German-Mexican alliance coming out of America, or it could have been America just destroying. Or yeah, Amer- America. Mexico. Yeah, or yeah. Me- yeah. That's that would have been terrible. So good move on Carranza for rejecting that offer. Yeah, my next point: Carranza was assassinated. <laughs> oh, <laughs> in 1920. It's not funny, but 1920. <laughs> it's not I'm funny, sorry. but it's, it's just it's like history. If you think of history as like one long story, like a Game of Thrones esque epic, then you're like, oh, I guess, yep. <laughs> okay, uh, what's his name? Venus. Uh, Venustiano. Uh, Venustiano. Venustiano. It looks like quote, Venus unquote, Tiano. <laughs> Venus Tiano. Tywin Lannister Carranza. <laughs> Venus Tianza Carranza. <laughs> was was an assassinated in 1920 during an internal feud among his former supporters over who would replace him as president. All right. So this leads into the period of 1920 to 1940. They're trying to consolidate all the different factions of the former revolutionary period and the post-civil war period uh, good luck. which coincided so three generals of the constitutionalist army alvero obregon plutarco elias Calles, and aldolfo de la huerta dominated mexico in the 1920s your boy did it he did it he did it really good uh their life experience in mexico's northwest decided to savage pragmatism in a sparsely settled region conflict with native americans uh, secular rather than religious culture, and independent, commercially oriented ranchers and farmers. So they had they had this kind of backing. It was very mm-hmm. very different from the central, more religious, urban Mexico City kind of power. Um, it's also different in the subsistence agriculture of the strongly Catholic, um, indigenous, and mestizo peasantry. Okay, so Ebregon was the dominant member of this triumvirate, which is a cool word, very Roman. Um, and he had defeated Pancho Villa in battle, so he had some swag to See, him. See, the thing is, like, I'm going to bring up Rome a lot because I know a thing or two about the history yeah. of Rome. Go ahead. But, like, even, like, this, like, hugely revolutionist period is, like, similar to, like, the year of the four emperors and, like, that super tumultuous time after, I mean, Roman's golden period where, I mean, it just started going downhill. I'm not saying Mexico's going, going downhill oh, by oh, any oh, means. I get it. I get it. I've seen the gladiator. But this is a cool... Yeah, you. so you're a Roman history expert, too? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I wouldn't call myself an expert. That was a stretch. You're an enthusiast. Um, you're knowledgeable. But it's like when you see, like, these parallels of history and, like, these, these like, cycles that keep happening because humans are the same everywhere. But please, continue. It was no, just a, that was a, a great aside. I needed to catch my breath. Okay. So I'm just going to list them here because they're too much detail to go into. Obregon has a presidency from 1920 to 1924. Callez has a presidency from 1924 to 1928. After Callez's final presidential term in 1928, former President Alvaro Obregon, was Obregon again. won the presidency again. However, he was assassinated immediately after the July election. There was a power vacuum. We do not air horns assassinations, <laughs> you're right, Kiki. You're right. Only, only sometimes. If, like, if Cortez had been assassinated, we would have... Yeah, that's true. We, <laughs> we were all it. waiting for Cortez to just fucking die. Um, Callez could not immediately stand for election, so a different solution to the crisis had to be found. So these revolutionary generals and others in the power elite, they just, they agreed that Congress should appoint an interim president. That's a good move. Yeah, sure. Um, and then in a final address to Congress in 1928, Callez declared that the end... He was going to end right here, strongman rule... And pre- Mexican president serving in the office of like strongman, military, also leader. Okay. Um, which is a, a good a good move. Yeah, um, I mean, it, it, strongman rule works for a time when you need to get things on the right track. Yeah. I think I'm not an expert, and I could be saying something wildly offensive right now. But I'm gonna I'm gonna stand by what I think. I think it's nice to have someone yeah. say like, "This is how it's gonna be," but you have to give that up, or else. Yeah. I mean, I mean he's essentially abdicating military power yeah. here in the executive, which is a big move. Um, okay, so this now enters a, a period which can persist till today of Mexico um, uh, ruled by institutions and laws rather than the military. Um, you also have the formation of real, real political parties as opposed to like revolutionary parties, um, which is good. Um, so his permanent solution to presidential succession was the founding of the National Revolutionary Party, PNR. It was is a nat- it, it'd be the party of 
Revolution Nacional. Never mind. Yeah. So, I just get it. Yeah, 1929, that gets started. It's a national party that was permanent rather than local. Um, he became the power behind this presidency. Um, in this period, it was the Maximato, named after his title of Jefe Maximo, Maximum Leader. Big boss. Big old boss. When I was in Spanish class in, um, I almost said undergrad, but I mean high school, um, my Spanish name was La Jefa, which meant the boss. But the boss. since I was very fat and very unpopular, a lot of people just translated that to the heifer. That's me. <laughs> Aw, I like Boggy it's, Peak better. It's funny in a very sad way. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Your your introduction, your interjections are getting you slightly less and less important. <laughs> okay, we'll just get back to history. Okay. So in 1934, the PNR chose um, a supporter of Calles, Lorazo Cardenas, Cardenas, um, Cardenas, Cardenas, who was a revolutionary general as the, as the successor. Um, he had a power base in Michoacan. I think it's Michoacan. Michoacan. Yeah. Which is a state, I guess, in Mexico, um, as the candidate for the PNR for the Mexican presidency. I think it's even derived from Mexica. Oh, cool. Michoacan. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah. So Cardenas he outmaneuvered his former patron Callas um, and sent Callas into exile. Actually, um. Um, he reformed. P- he didn't kill him though. That's good. He reformed the PNR structure, resulting in a new party called the PRM. Partido Revolucionario Mexicano, the Mexican Revolutionary Party. Good job, Brad. Um, that gets restructured again in ni- in 1946 into the PRI, the Inter- Institutional Revolutionary Party. PRI is still around, I think. So that PRI is still the PNR, just changed a couple times okay. in the 40s. Okay. Things that Cardenas did: he re- nationalized the oil industry, the electricity industry created the National Polytechnic Institute, started land reforms, and distributed free textbooks to the children. Yeah! Save the kids. Um, on the eve of World War II, the Cardenas administration, which lasted up until 1940, it was just getting stable, it was just consolidating control over a Mexican nation that had been revolutionary flux for decades, and the Mexicans were beginning to interpret the European battle between communists and fascists um, through their own unique revolutionary lens. They had a lot of pro-fascists in Mexico, the Spanish Falange, they called it, the fascist movement. Um, however, Cardenas wanted to remain neutral. He said capitalists, businessmen, Catholics, and the middle-class Mexicans who oppose many of the reforms implemented by the revolutionary government side with these fascists. So he was trying to kind of take a step back. Okay. This leads to, um, um, from revolutionary period, Cardenas is the bridge to real evolution as a nation. Um, Manuel Afila Camacho, Camacho? I would say Camacho. Camacho. He's the successor to Cardenas. Um, he, he was this real, really this bridge leader. Um, he was in the PRI. Um, let's see. Uh, so before the outbreak of hostilities between Axis and Allied powers, Mexico was firmly aligned with the United States. They were also in this belligerent neutrality where they did not want to get involved with European affairs. Who could blame them after the yeah. First World War? However, they followed the U.S. after Pearl Harbor. Um, Thanks, guys. They lost a lot of ships in the Gulf, oil ships, two U.S. submarines, and they did declare war on Axis powers in 1942. Um, they were one of two Latin American countries with Brazil who sent troops to actually fight in World War II, and their military unit was the Esquadron 201, or is the Aztec Eagles. Oh, that's cool. That's a cool name, too. Yeah. Um, I think Esquadron. It's like squad. Like Squad 201. Squad 201. That's awesome. Yeah, so I, I mentioned before, but Brazil also sent troops overseas. Um, here's a cool thing I found. Maybe not cool, just like a precursor to current day stuff. So with so many draftees going across seas, the U.S. needed farm workers. And the Rosero program gave the opportunity for almost 300,000 Mexicans to work temporarily on, on American farms, especially in Texas. I see this, and I didn't cooperate a lot with a lot of research, but a few things I read. This may be a precursor to the kind of cyclical migration that starts with seasonal farming in, Mex- in America. Okay, far, yeah. Farm work. Um, so that could be the beginnings of some economic trends that we still see today. Um, and literally, history's... Several of them said this. They kind of skipped over the 50s, 60s, and 70s. They just said it's part of this economic period of growth and relative stability called 
El Milagro Mexicano, the Mexican Miracle of Economic Growth. Look at it, because if things are finally stable, you're learning how to what your everyday life as a country is, and that's yeah. Yeah, we don't have we don't have power jostling here for decades, decades, and decades. Um, there is one conflict though of note: the Mexico Guatemala conflict. So two podcast nations going at it. I don't like that. Huh, this is this is a little much. I can't pick a side. Um, why would you? It's terrible. It's I know it's bad no matter what. Uh, with an armed conflict between the Latin American countries of Mexico and Guatemala, so civilian fishing boats of Mexican origin were fired upon by the Guatemalan Air Force. I don't, I don't know That's why. That's kind of rude. Hostilities were set in motion by the installation of Miguel Hidigoras. It's, it's, it's hard because it's Y-D-I are the first letters, but I think it's Hidigoras. Hidigoras as president of Guatemala in 1958. So there was a conflict there. Um, it get, I think it's resolved relatively quickly. It's not like it's a prolonged war. Um, okay, so modern Mexico. There's economic crisis in the 70s, leading into the 1994 like period where like contemporary history starts. Okay, PR, PRI administrators achieved economic growth and relative prosperity for almost three decades after World War II. However, the economy was led into several crises following that period. There was political unrest in, in the late 1960s. There was the Tlatelolco massacre in 1968. Tlatelolco. It's T-L-A-T-L-O-L-C-O. So I think it's Tlatelolco. Okay. Um, and there were dual economic crises in 1967, and, not 1976, and 1982. That's a good um, dyslexia moment, Brad. Yeah. Um, I'll you Darb. <laughs> darb. Um... <laughs> This led to the nationalization of Mexico's banks, and they were blamed for the economic problems, or the La Decada Perdita. It means the lost decade. The lost decade. La Decada. It's so cool. It's much cooler if you know the language. Um, On both occasions, the Mexican peso was devalued, and until 2000, it was normal to expect a huge devaluation and recession at the end of a presidential term. Um, there was a very famous one called the Mis- December Mistake, which threw Mexico into economic turmoil for over um, the worst over half a century. They're a great recession, really. Um, on nineteenth, on September nineteenth, nineteen eighty-five, an earthquake, an eight point one on the Richter scale, so it's a, a big huge eight. fucking earthquake, struck Michoacan, Michoacan, inflicting severe damage on Mexico City. Um, estimates of the casualties range from six thousand to thirty thousand. That's a um, huge range. Yeah, and there's public anger at PRI's mishandling of relief efforts, ongoing economic crisis. Um, and for the first time since the 1930s, the PRI began to face several uh, serious electoral challenges. What leads us into contemporary history? Hey. The Mexican general election of 1888 was extremely important in Mexican history. Period. <laughs> PRI's <laughs> candidate, Carlos Salinas de Gortari, was an economist who was educated at Harvard. He had never held elected office, and he was a technocrat. Um, he was against um, Cuauhtémoc Cardenas, the son of former president hey. La- Lorazo Cardenas. Lazaro. Lazaro. That was another dyslexia. Did I say lasagna? Ago. You said Lorazo. Lorazo. I just read him. I don't know. I'll say him right. Uh, broke with the PRI, is, and he ran as a candidate of the Democratic Current Party, later forming the Party of Democratic Revolution, the PRD. Um, there's a third candidate I don't get into because he does not win. <laughs> the election was marked by irregular, irregularities on a massive scale. The ministry, the ministry of the Interior, the Gobernación, Gobernación, okay, controlled the electoral process, which meant in practice that the PRI that was in power controlled the electoral process. Um, Cardenas was widely seen to have won the election, but Salinas, that Harvard dude, was declared the winner. <laughs> There might have been violence in the wake of such fraudulent results, but Cardenas did not call for violence or res- disputing it. He said he said he wanted to spare the country a possible civil war. That's really big of him. That's a good move. Cardenas, Quate- bro. What a great nail of that guy. I think it's Guatemoc. Guatemoc? I don't know. It's like one of those Nahuatl-looking names. Yeah, that's why I think it's awesome. Like it seems like ancient and very hard to pronounce. Awesome. There's so many vowels uh, tucked in there. Yeah, so bro move by Cardenas. Um, sparing a possible civil war, which, knowing Mexican history, probably would have happened. Yeah. And then on January 1st, 1994, Mexico became a full member of NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, huge for their economy, helped them grow into a free market. 
that entered that trillion dollar class among other powers like Japan, which we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, so now they have a, mo- a mixture of modern um, industry and agriculture. They're dominated by a real private sector. They have expanded competition in seaports, railroads, telecommunications, electricity generation, natural gas distribution, airports. I mean, they're modern country through and through, booming economy into the modern era. Can't dispute that. All right, so modern politics, the last kind of people in power, you have President Vicente Fox Quetzada. Quetzada? Yeah, he, I, that name is, is familiar to yeah. me. From 2000 to 2006. Yeah. I think they call it Vicente, oh. but maybe it's Vicente. I'm just going to call him Fox. Yeah, hey, uh, Fox. I can say that one. He's a candidate of the National Action Party, P-A-N, P-A-N. Which, which the third person that I omitted from the last discussion in 1988, he was in PAN, so they did actually have some power later. Actually, it's PAN, and that means bread. Just kidding, it's he PAN. Was, <laughs> he was the 69th president of Mexico. Um, he ended the PRI's 71-year-long control of the office. Ooh. Um, and he won due to discontent with the PRI's unchallenged hegemony. Um, and his opponent, President Zadillo, before him, um, conceded defeat on the night of the election, a first in Mexican history. So, real concessions of, of power, that's good. Democracy's awesome. President Felipe Calderon. Hot take, Brad. Hinojosa followed him. I think it's Hinojosa. Um, when He ruled, not really didn't rule, he was in <laughs> He held office from 2006 to 2012. He was also PAN, or PAN, which means bread, if you didn't know. He took <laughs> office after one of the most hotly contested elections in recent history. He won by a small margin, 0.56% of the votes, only 200,000 votes. Pulled the real Bush gore. And um, <laughs> uh, the runner-up was a PRD, or a leftist party candidate. A PURD. He's a total PURD. There's PURDs um, and PANs. And Calderon's government ordered massive raids on drug cartels when he assumed office, um, which led to increasingly deadly spates of violence in his home state where Mexico City is, Michoacan. Um, and this has led to like the main ongoing conflict of the federal government now, which is with the Mexican drug cartels, that instability in the country. Um, the current president is Enrique Piña Nieto. Nieto. Is he still current? Let's check. I don't... Okay. Maybe? He may have just had an election there. Yeah. Um, he was elected on July Because I know 1st. that like, you know, Trump having problems. Yeah. In 2012... Um, he's a former governor of the state of Mexico and the member of the PRI. Um, uh, there was changes to... This is just more modern stuff. There no, was, no, it's Nieto. Okay. There was changes to buy um, assault weapons in the, United States, in the United States in the early 2000s, which led the Mexicans, Mexican drug lords found it easy to buy weapons in the United States to use in Mexico, which proliferated some of the violence. Um, drug cartels have gained power, especially due to high empl- unemployment rates in certain Mexican states. So they have a lot more manpower at their disposal. A lot of insidious kind of stuff going on there. Um, the Mexican government conducts some of the largest independent illicit crop eradication programs to kind of stem the control of drugs. But there's still a major transshipment point for, mm-hmm. you know, cocaine and DNA, all kind of, all kind of or drugs. Or cocaina is my favorite way to pronounce cocaine, in this, if you're a Spanish speaker. I don't have favorite ways to pronounce it. It's okay. Um, I should I mean, get on that train. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's where, that's the main thing they're dealing with now as far as, like, in terms of power jostling, it's not really revolutionary stuff. It's more that factionized gang warfare, which, I mean, yeah. is huge and, and all... deadly and scary. I mean, if you watch Breaking Bad, you get a, a glimpse of it. Yeah. I mean, that's not even, like, a full picture. And I, no, it's But just... I feel like Breaking Bad is a good enough show where they wouldn't over-fictionalize it either. No, they didn't romanticize anything about it. Yeah. It just shows a part of it. Um, so, yeah, that takes us all through the second half of Mexican history into present day. And we're going to take a short break and then come back with some discussion. Yeah, we're going to talk about it. Welcome back from our break. Uh, so some of the things, um, it was like a lot, a lot of history. Yeah. Two parts. Got very dense. There's a lot of names. So I'm going to unwind with some of the things that we like about Mexico. Yeah. Uh, informal discussion. Informal discussion. I mean, like how we normally do. Uh, so I grew up in Colorado, which has a pretty 
large Hispanic population. Um, I grew up in a mostly white suburb, though, and so when I when I was growing up, I had a superficial appreciation of Mexican culture, and then when I went to my college town, which had a much, much larger Hispanic population, because mm-hmm. um, it was largely in an agricultural area of Colorado, um, you start to learn a little bit more about how cultural history uh, presents itself in the superficial ways that I learned, and then you get mm-hmm. a greater appreciation for those things and what they truly mean. So I've always loved like Latin music. My favorite singer is Juanes. He is Colombian. He's not Mexican. I know anybody. Who? Juanes. He's a, a Latin singer. He's, he's, he's very handsome. He's Colombian, no which one. I just said. And I'm making sure our listeners who love Juanes know that I know he is not Mexican. But I'm saying that's like what I learned in my Spanish class. And I started listening to more and more Latin music. Um, and familiarizing myself with Latin singers um, and Mexican singers. I learned salsa dancing. Um, get into like Mexican cuisine, not just, you know, Mexican restaurant food but what people from all parts of Mexico eat. Um, my roommate last semester, or last academic year, I should say. Estella. Yeah. Estella. <laughs> uh, she'll never listen to this, um, but I'll, I'll let her know that we talked about her anyway. Uh, but she was from, her family's from Southern Mexico, and she understood so much more than I had ever, well, obviously. Like, yeah. She, she's got the first-hand experience. And so living with her is a treat. She's like literally a third of my size. Um, and so cool. But anyway, uh, that's kind of like my relationship. And I feel like doing this podcast and learning more about what's actually been happening in like the last hundred years of Mexican history explains so much more about why people want to li- like why people live there, what they're doing there, how Mexican history influences American history, how it continues to do so today, where it's not even just history. It's uh, a cultural fusion going both ways of of Mexican mm-hmm. culture into American American into Mexican culture yep. like, as a southern neighbor to us um, there's like there's so many exchanges that happen that I think go unappreciated by some people in the country when really it's just something that enriches us so much more that's not a political take just a well, personal take I mean it could be like a sociological take so like young people um, because of like American culture is very very dominant like young people tend to like trend towards sharing a lot of the more, more same things than the older generations too so there's like generational isomorphism to use a grad school kind yeah, of yeah that thing. is a good grad school term um, one thing i want to talk about is that i think it'd be very beneficial to the perceptions of mexican culture in america if people identified mexican culture as just american culture it's like they're more proud of it so for example like film was my favorite like lens into this so like you have some amazing um and Mexican filmmakers and cinematographers like Alfonso Cuarón. He did one of the Harry Potter movies. Oh yeah. He did Gravity. Um, Guillermo del Toro, Pan's Labyrinth, the Shape third of Water. Harry Potter, yes. didn't he? The yeah. one that every it's like the standout one. The good it's one. So different, yeah. stylistically um, better than the Chris Columbus versions. Iñárritu, who did The Revenant. Um, uh, you have like um, the influences, even like you know, the Disney film like Coco. Mm-hmm. A lot of really good like. Um, Mexican language and music and kind of stuff research they did so I mean like me looking at that all the like the productions and they're, they're amazing filmmakers like oh yeah that's American filmmakers sound so much better than oh they're, they're Mexican film and it's just I don't know you don't have to parse it out that much you can just it's part of our continent and our culture I think it's awesome I think it's I might disagree and say it's nice to celebrate them as Mexican filmmakers but. well uh, well let me, let me rephrase that. Not as that they're good because we can see them as as American, not just Mexican, but because people should appreciate them and not distance themselves as the Mexican, but say they are, you know, our continental brothers. Yeah, as more like you should feel more solidarity with Mexican filmmakers because they are American than like French filmmakers because you see them as white. That kind of stuff. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Um, I just think they're awesome, too. It's the best. Another, this is one thing that I just, it's just a recommendation, but the show Jane the Virgin, it's on the CW. And you think, CW, that's a shit network. You mentioned this, like, last time, too. I know, but I just really like this show. (laughs) Um, And, like, Jane's family is from Venezuela, but Rogelio, my favorite character, is Mexican, and and he talks a lot about being, like, a Mexican actor. And if you look at um, interviews with the actor Jaime Camille, uh, he's just great. He's just very handsome. So anyway, just check it out. That was just a plug for a show. I don't get any money from them. 
But if they wanted to pay me, I would accept it's okay. it. okay. We, we already get plenty of revenue from this podcast from Fiji Water. You're so. right. Our, our, our favorite sponsor. Um, so I have some questions for you. Yeah, I have discussion, some answers, maybe. Discussion questions. Okay. That's if you, good. If you could visit anywhere in Mexico, where would you visit? <sighs> you know, I'd go to Mexico City. Um, because it's so huge and there's so much to do there. There's like 25 million people. And you can see those fucking cool pyramids, which I wouldn't want to get on them because they are death. Get on them. Actually, I think like there's like a lot of, um, like you're not allowed to be on them anymore because the steps are so steep and it's because the steps are so steep so the bodies would roll down smoothly. That is scary. But like, I don't know, there's that like spooky and historical quality that I'm just so into. Like like Chichen Itza? Yes. Um, and then... I would also, I mean, I don't like, I see a lot of my friends, because going to like resort towns in Mexico is very inexpensive, but I don't think that's what I would want to do. No. I mean, resort towns are relatively safer like than Cancun. some other parts. It's like whitewashed. It's... Yeah, but I'd want to go with, like, with Estella or with one of my Mexican friends who can show me what I need to see there. Um, because there's beautiful beaches, there's uh, beautiful jungles, you can get some sick cruises and stuff, but what I'd really want to see um, is the culture of Mexico, and I think you can yep. get the most of that in Mexico City. Mm-hmm. Um, what about you? I want to go to one of those big freshwater sinkholes in the Yucatan. Oh yeah, that are like a mile, like a mile across. It's like those are so cool. Those are really cool. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I'm trying to think of like a place that's not the capital that I'd want to see, but I'll tweet it. I'll tweet it out later. Yeah, and then we'll ask you too. Um, you already touched on this in your opening thing, but what's your favorite aspect of Mexican culture? Pick one. Oh. Your standout. Ah. I love blank. Declarative statement. Okay. So, I love seeing Mexican families. Because, like, I don't know, being in a white family, like, we love each other. We're Irish Catholics. There's a lot of us. Um, but when I see, like, Mexican culture, you see, like, strong, like, mach- there's, like, mach- there's Latin machismo. But you see a lot of, like, feminine and maternal strength. You like those abuelas, don't you? And I love seeing, like, abuelas, <laughs> and I love seeing, like, I don't know, I love seeing families being together and celebrating cool. together. Um, and I think that is one thing that, I don't know, when you're in a country that's been colonized for so long, there's so much war and there's so many political unsteadiness that teaches families to bond together. And it becomes a cultural thing that lasts forever. Uh, and you see that in some parts of, of the United States and, and many other cultures, mm-hmm. but I think that's... One thing I like to see, and also like those traditions being shared, like cooking, um, like families that uh, dance together and stuff like that. What about you? Also, La Musica. I'm a big nerd, so I want to say like Age of Empires 2 made me love like Aztec mythology and that cool shit. Like Obsidian and Jaguar Warrior. It's awesome. Um, Let me see. Favorite part of culture that I can experience today. Um, I do love the food. Hospitality. That's a thing. I like I like the appreci- the moving appreciation of things towards like or people towards I want to experience authentic stuff. I want to see I don't want to have this flour tortilla. I want to have mm-hmm. a real corn tortilla. I want a masa tortilla made yeah. from heirloom corn in a mountain town. Yes. I want something that's really ground with a mortar and pestle. I don't just want like salsa that just came in a can. I don't know. The appreciation that this has roots. Those roots are good. This can be even better if you get it from the source and you appreciate it. My mom um, had a Mexican coworker when she was still working at United Airlines. That doesn't matter where she worked. Yeah. Um, but she said that one day, like, because he was pretty distant from his culture, and he went back to visit his grandmother, and she made him this delicious salsa with, mm. with homemade chips. And then he's like, show me how to make this salsa. And then she's like, okay. And so she shows him. She's cutting up tomato. She's adding some cilantro. Yeah. Um, and then she has this little brown bag. And she opens it up, what's and he's like, what, what's in the bag? What's what in the bag? That? Maggots. Tons of maggots. And that's what gave it its nice, creamy punch. Jesus, what's up? And I was like, because like, hearing this as like an eight-year-old, I'm like, that's disgusting. But I'm like, if you grow up eating... Plus, like, protein. Gross. Yeah. Um, what's my next question? No, this is a more important question. No, I'm not going to ask that. This is more lighthearted. I like this. Okay. Um, ooh, I, um, I think this is cool. So... The 2026 World Cup will be jointly held by Mexico, Canada, and the United States. Really? Yeah. So we're, That's so nice, we, but where we, will it be? It will be, I mean, well, it'll be, the games will be all over, all oh, three okay. countries. 
Oh, so. I didn't know that they have. I thought it was like the Olympics where everybody's in one spot. Mm-mm. There'll be. I mean, there's there'll be different towns and stuff. So like one group stage will play like like half their games in a Mexican stadium, half their games like in like Colorado or something. I oh, mean. that's and then cool. Some other teams will be like up in Quebec and New York. I mean, and some teams will be just in the Midwest. So it'll be. I think it's cool. There's a pan North American bid for the World Cup, and they got it. Um, wasn't it in the most recent World Cup that Mexico was doing super well, and then it was a big disappointment? They've they've done pretty well for the past two World Cups. They've reached the either they reached the quarters of the semis, and they get knocked out by either Brazil or a good country. A good country. I mean, like a, a good soccer country. No, Mexico or, is a good soccer country. Or, like, a, like a country who goes on to win the World Cup and okay. plays in the final. Like a well, that's cool. Like a great. That's just something I remember seeing. Like a lot good. of my my friends supporting Mexico as a team. Yeah, I watch a lot of Mexican yeah. soccer. They're, they have an awesome goalkeeper called Ochoa. Like, I like, see that on my Twitter feed sometimes. He killed it like 2010. No, 2014. He was awesome. Um, that's all I got. Okay, um, that's all I wrote down. Any last thoughts on Mexico? Our first two-parter yeah, my, big nation. Yeah, first two-parter big nation. Uh, thank you for bearing with us as we're exploring this uh, uncharted ground in our podcast. Um, I feel like I've got so many more things that I feel about Mexico that I can express right now. Maybe talk all day. Um... But yeah, I'm, I don't know. I feel like Mexican culture is something that I want more of in my life. I'd love to go to Mexico one day. I should say again, because when I was uh, six, we went to... When we were a six. <laughs> we went um, to, what's that border town in California? Tijuana. Uh, what, and I think we spent like an afternoon there. I've got very vague memories. I know my mom bought us some, uh, like, a, like a skirt shirt combination she bought a Mexican blanket for my dad, and they had it for like 20 years. And uh, So I don't think it really counts as going to Mexico, though. I would like to go um, and visit. I know I say that about all the countries, but that's one place that I think would be easier to get to than that, some of the other ones. That's our said. neighbor. And it's our neighbor, and I feel like that's something I, I want to, I would like to do. I should in my life. I should. Uh, what's My post-familiarity rating has gone from, I don't know what it was before. I'm going to say it was a six. I think it was a four. It was, oh, it was a six. It was a six, because I was six. bold about it. I'm going, to, yeah. I'm going to boost it to a seven, um, and then I'm going to make an effort to, to get that to at least an eight by, 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 by before I die. Yep. What about you? What, how do you feel about everything? I think my FR rating, that's it's redundant. I think my F rating, um, <laughs> that's worse, <laughs> beforehand was a five. Yeah, and I think I'm a six or a seven, but I think I'm a six or a seven not because I'm a I'm a com, I'm in mastery of or commanding knowledge about Mexico, but because I have the impetus from which to do so, and the ability. I, I don't think it'd be easy for me to break into like South Sudan and go, and go there. Yeah, I don't think I'd want to go there yet. But like the like the potential energy of me, like getting into Mexico as far as like learning more about them is, is there and so abundantly there that a high rating um, when I went to um, this conference that I went to in Baltimore which is why we missed a few weeks actually I met with a recruiter from San Antonio uh, who is trying to get people to work there and he's like it's so close to Mexico and Austin you could get in all those cool cultural hubs the history I'm like yeah I could live in San Antonio and then I'm just a hop skip and a jump over from Mexico Awesome. Maybe a cool place to live, I think. Um, but also, it's in Texas. Is El Paso on the border? Yes. Okay. It's called, that's the pass in Espanol. And so, yeah, the, the, the pass between the borders. <laughs> the learning never stops. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, like, one thing I'm going to try to do more is I'm going to finish my Duolingo Spanish sessions. Uh, I think I'm, like, it says, like, I know 78 Spanishes, you know, like how Duolingo gives you, like, your rating. No, um, but it, like it's so confusing because you're like, I know I don't know seventy eight percent of Spanish language, um, and I, every time you stop learning it, you're backtracking like quite a bit, and that's what frustrates me about Duolingo because I, I feel like I know more than they think I know, and I'm sick of relearning some things, and I still don't know how to speak in the past tense, but uh, I was trying to speak with some of our uh, grad school, grad school Spanish speaking peers and friends, I'll say. Uh, and I ended up saying, like, the most gringo thing in the world. Because every time, like, I feel like I understand it. I can always understand what they're saying. Um, and then I'll just, like, bring up, like, oh, I'll just, I'll say something that lets them know that I understand at least a little bit of what they're saying. 
Um, and then they'd be like, oh, uh, hablas español? And I'm like, si, sí. yo puedo. Ah, uh, español. <laughs> I can Spanish. <laughs> and then they're like, oh. It's like, she, can't Deutsch. She, she can't Spanish. <laughs> she, she can't Deutsch. This one doesn't Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> That's thing. You just need to know enough. Uh, to pass, and I know some like good phrases. I feel like I, yeah, yo comprendo más de lo que puedo hablar means I understand more than I can speak. And then people, I feel like they'll stop talking about me. Just kidding. No one will ever stop talking about me. It's your curse. <sighs> this has gone on too long, I think. All right, you want to give our plugs? I want to and... give some plugs. All right, I want this it. to end. I'm going to go to a hair appointment. Um, I know that you guys are listeners of the podcast, but most are listeners that we know. So on the other side of this podcast, I will have different looking hair. Anyway, so things that you should uh, follow us is the Facebook page and the Twitter, which is the handle. I love your grammar today. <laughs> the World Podcast. So you can find us on Twitter at, at The World Podcast. Give us a tweet. We'll always follow it back. Um, you can also follow our Facebook page, The World As We Know It Podcast. Um, and there you can get some episode updates. We can have some fun interactions. One day we might have merchandise. It's never too late to start. One of our friends just started episode one today. So yes. Um, you can always catch up or hit the highlight countries you want to hear about. And, you know, you can also listen to us on double speed, which is how my roommate listens to us. And she says it's really confusing because she'll be listening to me on her headphones on double speak, And then I'll talk over myself in real life because I don't let, I don't give her a free moment alone ever. <laughs> I'm always bothering her. She's like, it's weird hearing your voice double and then your voice the way it is. The way it is. Yep. So you guys should have that too. Uh, so yeah, give us a listen. Tell your friends about us. And most importantly, please rate and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. And if you leave us a review, we will rate your hotness. Uh, and we'll read the review online or on air. I heard that hotness does correlate with the number of stars you give for a rating. That's we, true. And we know that because we use the star fixed effect to... <laughs> That's a good um, PPE joke for the class that we have together. I'm just going to double check to make sure we don't have any new reviews. Okay. One thing I've been trying to do is telling all of my Bumble mas- matches that the only way I'll date them is if they listen to at least two episodes so we can get our hourly rate up and nice. to leave a review. Smart. But it seems... Oh, we've got one. We've got one. It's from uh, Chili Willy 456 it's a five-star podcast. Wow. Uh, I wonder who that is. Thank you, Chili Willy. So Chili Willy says, thank you both for putting this together. I love learning more about countries outside of my own. 1010 would listen again. Keep up the great work. Oh, Chili, you sound fucking hot. What, what, is, what is it? Uh, the Chili Willy 456. Four, five, six. Four, five, six. He's a 456 out of 10. Oh. <laughs> uh, but thank you so much, Chill Will. And I, I guess that's about the, the end. It's almost the end, but we have to tell the good listeners what our next country is. That is true. And I'm proud to say that the next country will be the country Czech. of the, the Czech, Czech Republic. Republic. Or Czechia, which or we'll Czechia. get into why it's called two different things next week. So until then, Kiki. Adios. Adios.